Welcome, everybody, to the first official podcast of the 2019-2020 season for Busting Brackets. I'm Connor Hope, here with my co-host, Brian Ralph. And we're going to start looking forward. I, the past couple of podcasts, we've been looking back at, at the 18-19 season uh, and then looking at some of the draft, uh, both our thoughts before the draft as well as our thoughts after the draft. But it's now officially time to start looking forward and start looking at the next season. Brian, how are you feeling? I'm feeling like it's July and there's not a whole lot going on. So I'm excited to kind of look ahead and, and dive into this. I know we're still a couple of months away, but it's going to be an exciting season. There's a lot of, I feel, balance and parity at the top. Um, and really all throughout kind of the top 25 where it wasn't necessarily that, that last year. And I think that's going to make for some fun games, particularly early on in the season. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that there's about six to seven teams that uh, are clearly – going to be labeled as the favorites heading into the season. But if you look at teams 10 through 30, 35, I mean, any of those teams can can step up and, and move into that that those top spots. Any of those teams may fall flat on their face. There, there's a lot of question marks, but there's also a lot to be excited for, for a lot of those teams in, in yeah. the top 50. Well, I don't even know how good necessarily some of the, those teams at the top are. Uh, Michigan State's going to start at number one preseason. Uh, as as well they should. I have real concerns about their front court depth. They don't have any size, so, and like they're they're clearly going to be their one team in the preseason. They're going to be really good. I'm not saying they're going to be bad or anything like that. And it's going to be fine. But I think there's there's not that team that kind of doesn't have any holes, and we may see that develop through December and January as we get to see some of these teams play. But with Michigan State being the best team and still having kind of in my mind, at least a glaring hole that kind of sets the table for what could be an unpredictable season. Yeah. And I think we, we kind of discussed that a couple, a couple podcasts ago, the, the loss of Nick Ward uh, going mm-hmm. pro kind of put a, put a, threw a wrench in, in what was presumably going to be Michigan state's yeah. championship to lose. Um, but yeah, I agree with you there. They're missing out on the that front court depth. Um, and there are a lot of other good teams that are either really young or mm-hmm. are based entirely on the predicted leap forward that isn't always a guarantee. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a fun season. There's not – outside of Michigan State, there's not that one team I think is should be labeled as a favorite. Yeah, I agree. And we'll get into the non-conference schedule here because that stuff's starting to come out in some of those big games, and there's a lot of those big games on tap. That's what's going to make November and December really interesting is because a lot of these top teams are going to be going up against each other, and we're going to get to see kind of at least early on the cream, which of the cream sort of rises to the top, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I'm glad some of the teams that I have question marks on play each other. Some of the top mm-hmm. teams that are labeled at the top play each other. And so uh, I feel like the non-conference this year, maybe more so than any other year, is really going to set the tone uh, for where the top teams are, uh, where, you know, in, in years past, sometimes you, you, you got the, the top five teams out of the non-conference, but then once you get conference play, there was a lot of movement. I feel like we're definitely going to see which teams are going to step up 
earlier in the season than, than we did in, in a couple of years past. And we'll get our first look, really, the first night of the season with the Champions Classic. There's a, a legitimate chance that Michigan State, Kansas, Kentucky, and Duke are their top four teams in the country that will all play each other that, that first night. And I think it would be interesting to see Duke's young pieces, kind of if there was a group of one-and-done guys with Trey Jones back, can be the team that we think they're going to be. They're not as hyped. They're not as good talent-wise on paper as the group was last year. I think that group would be extremely tough to top, but they, they may fit better together. I think Matthew Hurts can provide some shooting and floor spacing that they didn't have last year. Kentucky's breaking in a lot of new pieces as well, um, along with their returners. So that's one of those things where it's going to be, uh, can those returners, can guys like Ashton Hagen step up and take that next step? What exactly can the freshmen produce? How quickly can they find their roles? We talked about Michigan State at the front court depth. And Kansas, I actually – I know Michigan State, as I said, will be number one in the preseason, but I would vote for Kansas. I have Kansas as the number one team just with Azubuki coming back, Souza coming back, um, Dotson coming back, and I think him going to take a big step forward. They got some good shooting on the wing with Moss. In terms of a team that doesn't have those glaring holes – I like them the most, I think, which kind of scares me with Bill Self, and um, we don't know what's coming from the NCAA with them. Um, but I'm excited to see all of those teams sort of play themselves out on that first night. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that I'm right there with you. I'd probably, I would probably vote Michigan State one, but Kansas would be a close second. Um, they, they do have the size, but but it's yet to be seen how they – uh, make up for some of their big losses this year. So, um, a lot of a lot of the second tier teams too. Uh, I think we'll see those guys differentiate themselves at the battle for Atlantis, which I know we're both super excited about. That's a absolutely loaded field. You have Southern Miss, which decent team, but sorry, Southern Miss, you're not going to finish anything higher than eighth in that. But then you have teams like Iowa State and Michigan that are rebuilding. No one really knows what to make of them or expect of them. Um, you got teams at the top. You have Gonzaga, Seton Hall, who returned pretty much everybody from last year's team, who I'm really high on. UNC, who's another team who has a lot of talent, led by Cole Anthony. But, again, a lot of young guys and replacing a lot of players. We don't know exactly how they're going to look. And then you got Oregon, who's also replacing – pretty much everybody, but has talent. And Alabama, who talent was never a problem with them. It was just could Avery Johnson get the most out of them, and he couldn't. So now Nate Oates is in there. I think they fit his system pretty well. There's a lot of teams in that field that I think have top 10 upside. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, of those teams, obviously UNC, I think, is probably the most talented. Um, And I think they're – going to spend the most time in the top 10. Uh, but I would put Gonzaga at Seton Hall right on that cusp. Uh, I'm not entirely sold on Oregon yet, but but Oregon's definitely right in that top 25 conversation for sure. So, yeah, that battle for Atlantis uh, is going to be really fun to watch. I actually, for in terms of Seton Hall's non-conference schedule, I'm really excited for that Maryland game because mm-hmm. both Seton Hall and Maryland – uh, their their uh, their projections, uh, top fifteen, top ten teams, are based almost entirely on people expecting them to take that next step forward. Oh, yeah. And um, I know you're high on Seton Hall. I'm high on Maryland. But do they take that next step forward? And 
you know, that game is going to be one of those games of, of teams that are new. I, I, I don't want to say new to the top 15, but at least in terms of from last year to this year, new to that upper echelon of college basketball. Yeah, I was high on Maryland a few years ago when they had Miller Trimble and Jake Lehman and Diamond Stone. And you're only going to be high on Maryland one year before you just come to realize that Mark Turgeon is not going to do anything over expectations with them. That is a game I'm interested to see as well. They played last year, and Seton Hall won, I believe, in College Park, which was big for them to kind of wrap up their non-conference schedule. They had beaten Kentucky last year, too, and I think that kind of put them on the map. I think a similar win for Maryland could do the same thing. Seton Hall is a team I'm really interested in because they have all those players returning, including Miles Powell, who I think is going to win National Player of the Year. I absolutely love watching him play. Um, He was the kind of guy who took over every game You knew it was coming in the second half that Miles Powell had a run that was coming, and it came every single time. Like it was like clockwork. You could bet on it. I'm hoping uh, he takes that next step forward because I think if he does, the Seton Hall team can be a top-10 team, be a top-3C in the NCAA tournament, and challenge for a Final Four berth. But that's going to rely on on him taking that step forward and then some of those role players stepping up as well, uh, which, again, will be interesting to see because we – just haven't necessarily seen that from this group. And the Big East is going to be tough this year too. Yeah, no, the Big East is going to be really tough. And and I, I actually had a question for you. Um, I was going over some of the, the Big East rosters, and I've seen a lot of people expecting Marquette to take a pretty big step back with the loss mm-hmm. of the Hauser twins. I'm not necessarily sure. They're going to take a step back. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be that big. They, they've got Kobe McEwen and Jace Johnson coming in. Uh, and Greg Elliott's returning as well. And while they might not be as good in the front court, I don't think Jace Johnson is necessarily enough to make up for the for the brothers. Um, mm-hmm. But their backcourt's going to be pretty solid. And, and I think that they could be, compete with Villanova and Seton Hall for that top spot in the Big East if, if it all comes together. I, I think Villanova and Seton Hall will make a clear separation of themselves from kind of the rest of the group, kind of like Marquette and Villanova did last year. The big thing with Marquette that we'll find out in November, December, is if those other guys can make defenses respect them enough to where they don't play everybody on Marcus Howard. Because that was something the Hauser twins did. They made you pay for sending double teams and kind of focusing your defense on Howard. Because Howard is going to get his no matter what. He's this that kind of player. It's can you get 10 points from two other guys? three other guys. Can they at least be threats to make defenses respect them? And that's what I'm not so sure about. I, I think they'll, they'll be a tournament team. They're, they have too much talent not to be, but to still be in that sort of top 25 challenge for the, the conference kind of standing that I'm not so sure about. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and, and then the other news out of the big East, I think that uh, we'd be remiss to not at least touch on, uh, since it relates to your concerns about uh, Kansas's future and a couple of other schools' future, the the decision that came down against DePaul, mm-hmm. um, where they had to relinquish some of their wins, uh, head coach uh, DePaul had wins. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> their their head coach was uh, suspended for first four games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to me, it doesn't seem like 
that big a punishment. Now, granted, I, I'm not sure DePaul was was that heavily involved. Um, right. But do you think it's indicative? Do you think that they're going to come down with similar punishments against the the schools that were more deeply involved? Do you think that the fact that the DePaul punishment came out first um, was That'll be the interesting part because we saw DePaul kind of get a slap on the wrist. We saw NC State get something similar uh, where they vacated, essentially vacated the wins from the Dennis Smith year, which was, I believe, a 15 and 17 season. So uh, that didn't necessarily matter anyway. And Gottlieb's not the coach there anymore. So it didn't necessarily hurt them in any way significant, so to speak. Um, I'm sorry, NC State only got the notice of allegations, but they're probably going to get something similar to that. Um I think we'll see a lot of the schools get punishments like DePaul, where it's a slap on the wrist, you vacate some wins, your coach gets suspended for a little bit. But those are going to be the minor schools involved, the DePauls, the NC States, uh, maybe the South Carolinas and Oklahoma State, those kind of schools that were kind of mildly involved. I'll be interested to see if they go that step forward with the Arizonas and the LSUs and the Kansases, because if you're going to hammer somebody, those are the schools you're going to hammer. You're not going to hammer – DePaul. You're not going to hammer NC State, although in the past those schools tend to get a bigger punishment than the big dogs. I don't know if the FBI changes that in, in any way. The one thing, too, I think the NCAA could hide behind with this, and I think did a little bit with the DePaul sanctions, which may show their thinking. The entire investigation and, and, and trial was about these financial advisors, Adidas representatives, committing corruption and bribery to defraud the universities, which sounds ludicrous, right? Because they're defrauding these universities by giving them good basketball players and then making you money and all of that kind of stuff. The entire notion of that is ludicrous. But that's what the investigation and trial was about. And all of them were found guilty. So in the NCAA's mind, the schools aren't at fault. By a court's decision, the schools aren't at fault. It was the financial advisors, Adidas reps, shoe guy, everything. Those guys were at fault, the agents, not the schools. The schools have to get punished in some sort of way, but I think the NCAA may use that as a way to kind of skirt uh, dropping a a, a serious hammer on an Arizona or LSU, so to speak. Right. Yeah. No, and I think that – I guess, what do you think that should there be a difference in punishment between the two? Like, what would you expect, like, an Arizona or, K- or Kansas to get? Well, I mean, I don't know if that, and that's what I was kind of getting at was that I understand that DePaul is, was probably less involved and they didn't get the same, I guess, benefits out of it that, that other mm-hmm. schools did. And uh, they weren't a very successful program. But the fact that they kind of got a slap on the wrist as the first real move uh, in this whole thing by the NCAA makes me think that the other schools are probably going to get more of the same um, because their whole argument now is, well, DePaul got that punishment. We're just going to go with that punishment. And and some schools, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, before all is said and done, one or two of the schools tries to self-impose uh, the same punishment because yeah. the punishment wasn't really that bad. And so schools um, that might not necessarily have the same kind of level of success 
might start self-imposing or or even schools with success uh, that just kind of see it as a way to not have the rest of their recruiting practices kind of looked in on um, might start self-imposing as well. What do you do if you're Louisville? And how would you treat Louisville if you're really in sort of play? Because they're wrapped up in this too. And a lot of people, you know, if the DePaul things are a sign of things to come, it would essentially be a stop on the rest of them. But they're the only one in this who it would be their second major violation within, you know, a really short period, which has some people thinking they may get a, a much more severe punishment than the other programs. So what do you see that happening? Do you see the NCAA kind of still falling under the, well, the school didn't know. And, and, and Louisville is the only school that fired their coach. That sort of made some substantial changes. Do you think they'll get something more severe because it's their second infraction or is the NCAA going to give them the same kind of deal as everybody else? You know, I, I mean, they're definitely going to get the uh, restrictions or the probation on recruiting and stuff like that. I wouldn't be surprised if they got a one-year uh, postseason ban. Um, Another one? Because yeah. they got one from the, the stripper scandal as well. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if they got the same thing. Um my guess, my guess is no, but my guess is that the the worst that's going to happen to them is is a, is the one year thing. Um, just because I I think that because there's so many schools wrapped up in this to mm-hmm. single them out, even though it is their second infraction, to to single them out and, and kind of give them anything worse would not necessarily uh, rest well with a lot of people. But who knows? Who knows what the, I mean, I honestly don't yes. know how the NCAA makes any of their decisions regarding uh, violations. Anything. Yeah. It's yeah, a, anything. That's I mean, so true. We're, we're, how many players right now are we waiting to see if they have immediate eligibility or not? Oh, uh, yeah. And nobody knows how those decisions are made. Uh, so. Just play quarterback and you'll get a waiver. You'll be fine. <laughs> but I, I think the Louisville thing is interesting to watch this year because that one year postseason ban that came down, I think came down in like January or February on a year when Louisville was pretty good. And they had a couple of grad transfers. Uh, Damian Lee was one of them who made that comes to mind who were kind of leading the charge. And they found out most of the way through the season that they weren't going to be able to play in the tournament. And this Louisville team this year is going to be really good. They're another team that has everybody back from last year's team and tournament team kind of fell apart down the stretch after they blew that Duke game. Um, but a lot of good guys back, top recruiting class coming in, a couple five-star guys. They're going to be top five, top ten in the preseason. Do you think that they're a Final Four caliber team? Of of all the teams that uh, are that, let's see if they take the next step um, and compete at the top, I think Louisville is probably – the top of them. So I probably would put them in the top five, top six, uh, Mm -hmm. schools. Um, but, but we'll see. I mean, they, obviously their loss to Duke last year kind of sent them down into it. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I mean, that's the thing is that all it takes is one, one thing to go wrong and, and a team to implode. And if, if it's, you know, it's the same players and, and, and the same coach and 
you know, they're, it's, it's not like it's uh, a whole new cast of players. And, and we're looking at this that way. I mean, they, most of these players were part of that downward spiral. So. Um, I, think I think people give them the benefit of the doubt with Chris Mack and it being and just sort of his resume that he built at Xavier. And this is the first full off season they'll have under him. Um, they're adding a, a severe influx in talent. So all signs, I think, point up. I think the only question is sort of can they get over any mental block that may come from um, losing maybe at Kentucky, maybe against Kentucky, or, you know, kind of one of those big games. Can they bounce back and deal with adversity in a way they couldn't last year? Yeah, and, and, and I'm with you, and, that, and that's what I was trying to say. And I, I hate kind of going through that Well, they – gone into downward spirals before so all it's going to take is one loss and then they're going to go down again but um i mean it, it, it they'll my guess is that we'll see what their mental makeup is you know after that kentucky game mm-hmm. uh and if they lose and bounce back or if they beat kentucky then i'm i'm comfortable saying that they're a final four contender uh but if they lose to kentucky and then don't play well for uh, three to four games after that, um, then we're going to get into the, well, then they have to go and play in the ACC. And what happens when they lose to a Duke or a UNC or, Mm -hmm. or someone like that? Like, I mean, so I think that game against Kentucky is not necessarily going to be indicative of how good they are going to be this year. But I think the three to four games after that and how will they play if they lose is really going to tell the the story of, of their mental makeup. I think that Kentucky game could really set the tone for their play in the ACC. I think you win that game, you kind of go into ACC play with a little bit of a swagger, knowing that um, sort of you had just made a statement and you confirmed that you are indeed one of the best teams in the country. You know? So I, I – I could see them putting a lot into that game, and I think there could be a downward spiral afterwards because of it. But I think that'd be a game they'd be looking to sort of make that statement. Another game, too, for Louisville uh, in particular that I'm really looking forward to uh, is the Louisville-Texas Tech game. It's part of the Jimmy V Classic at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Louisville, obviously, we we know what's the, what the deal with them is. Texas Tech reloaded again, going to be top 15, No, uh, kind of like last year. I don't think anybody really knows what to expect from them. But unlike last year, they have everybody's respect that Chris Beard can do this. And we, we've seen their players on, on the biggest stage, and we kind of know what to expect. So I'm really interested to see that game. So I think it will be a good measuring stick game for both teams. Yeah. No, And like we said earlier, there's going to be a, a lot of measuring stick games in this mm-hmm. non-conference. Um I mean, just just on the West Coast, Gonzaga plays uh, Washington in Arizona, who are two of the top three teams in the Pac-12. So Utah State plays Florida this year. Um, and obviously, Utah State is being named as a one of the mid-majors in the top 25, uh, taking a pretty sizable step forward, even from last year, where they surprised everyone. And Florida is taking that leap where a lot of people have them in their top five, top seven teams. So I um, love Florida after getting Blackshear. I, I a huge fan of the roster that they have. 
do you think do you think Florida is better than Kentucky? Because um, that that's going to be a big question, I think, heading into the season. Is is Kentucky the best team in the conference, or is is Florida now in that in that spot? I think they're both comparable, but I trust Florida's roster a little bit more. I know it's a new team and situation, but I think you kind of know what you're getting from Blackshear. I think you know what you're getting from Andrew Nemhard, Florida's point guard, as sort of his floor. You expect him to take a step forward, but you know sort of what you're getting from him. I think Scotty Lewis, who's Florida's five-star top 10 freshman, is a bit safer because you he's one of those guys who you also know what you're going to get from him. He's super athletic, really good defender, really good in transition, smart player, good passer, not a, a great shooter or necessarily threat to score sort of just isolation wise, but knows how to play. And I think as somebody who will settle into his role really well next to Nimhar, I think they will be one of the better defensive backcourts in the country as well. So uh, I'm picking forward to win the SEC because I trust them more, but that doesn't mean that I don't think Kentucky is just as talented and could win. I think I just think at this point in the year, before we've seen them play any games, Florida's the safer team, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. Um, I I actually might go with Kentucky as still the the team I would pick to win at least the regular season title. Um, but I think when it comes to head to head and in the tournament, I like Florida better. Um, yeah. But I just think that there's a lot to be said about Kentucky's success, at least in the, in the regular season um, in the SEC. Uh, yeah. And their home court advantage is, is better than Florida's. Right. I would say. Right. And that, that always plays a role. We, that's why Kansas won the big 12 so many years in a row, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that, that plays a role in, in regular season races. Yeah. Something you touched on earlier. I, I kind of want to jump back to real quick. You talked about Utah state being one of the mid majors probably going to be ranked in the preseason top 25. There's going to be a lot of those teams this year that are really in the mix. Utah State, team people like VCU is a team people really like a lot. Davidson as well. What are some of those mid-major teams that you're keeping an eye on that you think could make some noise during the regular season and potentially have to make up to make a, a second weekend kind of run in the NCAA tournament? So I'm going to I'm gonna be come out pretty – pretty hard against St. Mary's. I know a lot of people, um, a lot of people are putting St. Mary's in their top 25. Is that uh, just because they return everybody? And that's exactly it, is, is they return everybody except for the player who I think was the key to them beating Gonzaga. And so you you lose Jordan Hunter, who was was the only reason Gonzaga mm-hmm. had had limited success in the paint against St. Mary's. Um, yeah, you have Jordan Ford, who I think is the front runner for uh, WCC Player of the Year at a school not named Gonzaga. Um, <laughs> there you Mr. go. Boring, uh, comes back or is returning from injury, um, and he was out last year. Uh, but there's a lot of maybes for them right now. Um, I'm pretty confident Aaron Menzies gets a sixth year of eligibility for injury, but I'm not entirely sure. And, and again, he's a He's a solid offensive threat, not a great defensive player. And, and Logan Johnson, the the transfer from Cincinnati, there's some talk that he might get a, a waiver to be eligible. 
Um, but that's a, a little bit less certain, I think. Uh, but yeah, I, outside of Jordan Ford, there's nobody on that team that I think has proven themselves enough for me to put that. Well, Malik Fitz has proven himself, but outside of Ford and Fitz, there's no one on that team that screams top 25 roster to me. Um, I think had they, to put it in perspective, had they lost to Gonzaga in the WCC tournament, they wouldn't even even be sniffing the top 25. Yeah, and let's give some props to uh, Randy Bennett for scheduling games outside of the state of California in a <laughs> conference. Yeah, that's another game. I, that's an, I, I think that's another game that'll be a lot of fun is when they take on Arizona State, the game that got canceled last year. Uh, that game in Phoenix, I think, is going to be a lot of fun because Arizona State, too, is another team that I don't think anybody's really sure what exactly to make of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look past the top three teams in the Pac-12, um, there's a lot of questions. Uh, can, Colorado is one of those teams. They – return I, I think they return they were at least top three most minutes uh in the country have the player that i still think is probably the best point guard on the west coast um and they have a i mean they're just a tough team but can they make that take that next step uh can andy andy enfield get usc's talent to play to its talent level um does mick cronin uh make an immediate impact uh, for UCLA. So, uh, and, and Arizona State, can, can they continue to be that team that kind of just sneaks into that top three or four in the Pac-12 um, and, and finds a way to make the tournament? If I had to guess, I would say the Pac-12 probably gets four, maybe a fifth team, if that fifth team is like one of those last four in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but uh, you know, I think Oregon, Arizona, Washington—they're safe. They're probably going to be tournament teams. And then you've got four or five. I mean, even Oregon State—you've got like four or five teams that are battling for one or two, two more bids. Um, How would you rank those top three teams? Because I think all of them have very obvious upside. You have two fantastic freshmen at both Arizona and Washington. Oregon has a great group of. of incoming talent as well. And they still have Peyton Pritchard, who's going on his 15th season in Eugene. Who do you like? Of the, like, how do you see those three kind of stacking up against each other? I'd probably, if, if I had to rank them right now, I'd go Arizona, Washington, Oregon. Okay. Um, I think Oregon's going to have kind of that same issue that uh, you, you said about, Michigan State, they're not that deep in the front court. Um, and there's a lot of, can they make that leap? I mean, Shakur Justin from uh, uh, UNLV is a solid pickup. He'll be ready to play right away. Uh, and then they've got Francis Okoro. But behind them, they have three freshmen, and, and none of them are blow-your-socks-off freshmen. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they fit in. Uh, they have a – I mean – I think Oregon has a solid backcourt. So it's really up to those those key players in the frontcourt and how they can step into their positions. Because to get Anthony Mathis from New Mexico to play alongside Peyton Pritchard um, was 
one of the more under underappreciated moves, I think, of the the off season. Um, just to kind of fill in that that role uh, as a second option. I'm going to say on the West Coast, is Andy Enfield coaching for his job? So in no, under normal circumstances, <laughs> I would say yes, he's coaching for his job. The issue is Lynn Swan. And it's been a thing, an issue with their football team for the past two to three years. Um, Lynn Swan does not like to – he has a lot of loyalty to his coaches, it seems. And so if USC can compete, and can get into that NIT NCAA conversation, uh, maybe sneak a bid. Uh, I don't think there's any way that he fires Enfield. Um, that said, I'm not sure Enfield's preferred style of play fits a team that's getting a lot of top-level talent. And I say that because he his team is is very heavy on the turning kind of chaotic defense into offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't you don't really get those types of players uh, at the top of the recruiting classes. I mean, if you look at uh, West Virginia, for example, you know, they, their players are, are those players that are really adamant about playing defense. Uh, and USC just hasn't really recruited those types of players. I think you can look at Shaka Smart, too. I mean, he played a, a certain style at VCU and went to Texas and sort of completely abandoned it in an effort to get those top-tier guys. And he's gotten them, but hasn't turned that in, into wins. I think he goes into the year as, I think, the coach on the, on the biggest hot seat to watch, uh, either him or Archie Miller at Indiana. Because Indiana fans aren't happy with what happened last year. Yeah, and that's the thing I, I absolutely can't stand is that it makes zero rational sense to me why Archie Miller's on the hot seat right now. But knowing UCLA fans and drawing that kind of congruency to Indiana fans, I could see why they would want him on the hot seat. Well, those schools are, I think, in the, I think Indiana fans more than UCLA fans. Um, just because of, of how rabid their fan base is. Although UCLA fans have high expectations, I don't think show it the same kind of way with the same kind of passion, I, I think, as Indiana fans do. Um, I think, in a sense, both schools are thirsty to get back to blue blood kind of status, just being relevant nationally. And in Archie Miller's case, I think he was he's become somewhat of a victim of his own success, so to speak. And not that he's had a ton of success, but relative to the expectations. His first year, they weren't a great team, but they were better than they were expected to be. And then started last year 12-1 and one or 12-2, and two, something like that, and they were ranked in the top 20 and had their five-star guy in, in Romeo Langford and uh, things were on the up and up. And for it to collapse the way it did, given the point where he had gotten expectations to, I think played as big of a factor as anything in terms of perception of him now. Because – you know, if they had a down year last year and finished with the same record this past year that they did, I don't think people are talking about it. But because he over, I guess because he exceeded expectations for a year and a half, 
that last half of the year was much more catastrophic than it would have been otherwise. Do you think that, and, and maybe it's just me being optimistic, but, and, it, and I'm not one to say addition by subtraction, but do you think that the fact that they might be playing more of a balanced attack rather than having Morgan and Langford take up over 50% of, of the possession time? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that'll help them. And I think we saw that with Duke last year, kind of getting into that same trap towards the end of the year where it was either Zion shoots it or RJ shoots it, or we pass one of them the ball and let them shoot it. The other guys stopped being aggressive. And I I know with Indiana, there was also a lot of chemistry problems that went on with that group that sort of played a major reason in in why they self-destructed. Langford was kind of at the heart of some of those problems. So, I think there's a dis- much subtraction in that regard, but they're less talented too. Uh, I, I think they may play more of the system that Arch Miller wants to play. So I think we may see them uh, at least look a little bit better when they're on the court, just in terms of uh, the aesthetics of it. But I don't know how much better the end product is going to be. And I guess going off of that is what is what is the expectation that the school is going to be placing on them this year? NCAA tournament. I think a lot of these coaches that are on the hot seat, it's, it's NCAA tournament or bust. Some of them have put themselves in that situation where they need to, uh, especially Shaka Smart and, and Andy Enfield. Uh, some of them are just the victim of expectations. With, with Archie Miller in particular, um, I think it's interesting with Sean Miller, if they somehow don't make the NCAA tournament this year, with all the off-court stuff going on, uh, plus, it would have been now two years where they didn't make the NCAA tournament, and um, I think four times in five years where they wouldn't have advanced past the first round of the tournament. I think we would start to hear some rumbles there. A um, couple other places I think you'd start to hear some rumbles as well if they were to miss the tournament. But, um, again, some of that's warranted, but in, in Archie Miller's case, it's just come to the territory of being a school like Indiana, right? They expect to be at least in the tournament every year. Yeah, um, and, and if Tom Crean's good at Georgia or better at Georgia, which he he may very well be with Anthony Edwards this year, that's only going to raise the stakes even more for Miller because they're going to be looking at sort of what they gave up to get him. Not that Crean should have stayed because his time was done there, but there's always a little bit of that ex girlfriend kind of deal. Yeah, no, definitely. And kind of looking at Crean in Georgia. Um, I'm not necessarily sold that they're as good as the hype surrounding them is. Um, What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that a lot of their hype comes from the fact that they got Anthony Edwards and Mm -hmm. not necessarily that the team itself is as good as people are making them out to be. They got some good recruits in there along with Edwards, not the kind who can make the significant impact of, you know, like the group at Memphis is going to. And I, Find it amazing we made it this far without talking about Memphis and everything uh, that they have going on this year. But if they if Nick Claxton came back, I think then we'd start to see the hype train really going. I think it would have been warranted because I think him and Anthony Edwards would have been a really potent duo. But I don't think you can blame Claxton for leaving. And I think that maybe may have tempered expectations a little bit um, there. But honestly, because it's Crean's second year. And as long as Georgia football does well and either wins the SEC or makes the college football playoff, they're not going to care. 
they're, it's just at, at that school, they're not, they're not going to care. I'll, I'll tell a story. I, I looked at going to Georgia for college and this was back in uh, 2008 or 2009 when I went and looked at the school and it was the summer right after it was summer 2008. Yeah. The summer right after um, maybe it was 2009, but it was the summer right after Georgia won the SEC tournament and it kind of gone on that run and where they won two games in a day and there was the hurricane um, that came through and they got an NCAA tournament berth by winning the SEC tournament in dramatic fashion. We're touring, we're, we're driving by uh, on the tour bus, driving by the basketball stadium. Um, and we had just gone past the football stadium and they were talking about the football team and everything with that. And we're passing the, the basketball stadium and the tour guide's like, this is, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's where our, our gymnastics team plays. And they're one of the best gymnastics, women's gymnastics teams in the country. Move on. There was no, the basketball team had just had probably its crowning achievement of the past decade, uh, and there was no mention of it with the school. So I don't expectations can be high. I think in terms of the way we look at what we may expect George to do, but uh, internally, I don't think Crean's going to feel any kind of pressure. Right. Sorry to get off on that tangent, but perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, I, I just, there are some, there are some teams that I think people are expecting to take a huge step back that I'm not necessarily sure are going to be that much of a step back. And then some schools that I think people are expecting a little bit too much from, um, I think the team that, and, and I hadn't really even heard about them until this past week when, when someone, I forget who it was, released their list of three new head coaches that are head coaches at new destinations that are going to make their NCAA tournament. Um, and one of them was BYU, the Mark Pope. Um, Interesting. And I don't know if they were saying three bid WCC, which is never going to happen. Or <laughs> if they were saying that BYU was going to take St. Mary's bid. I which, think that's a possibility. I think it's a possibility. I, I, I think that, um, It'll be interesting. They don't really have a true point guard. Uh, TJ Haas kind of plays that role, but he's so much of a shooter that sometimes it can get become an yeah. issue. Um, the the fact that Nick Emery retired uh, af- after his 85th season with the Cougars uh, was pretty big. I'm pretty sure uh, he played with Jimmer. Yeah. Because he was, for, for as much as people couldn't stand him, he was their best uh, perimeter defender. He gave and, people plenty of reasons to not be able to stand him, yeah. too. Um, he was their best perimeter defender and was willing to be that kind of mm-hmm. secondary player, kind of role player. Yeah. Um, but they're putting TJ Haas and Jake Toulson in the backcourt together, uh, and neither of them are really the number one threat. And so it's they have a ton of talent, but I'm not sure it necessarily all fits together um, to be a, a tournament team. But we'll see. I, I, I think the new coach that most people are going to have their eye on is Juwan Howard at Michigan. And yeah. I wrote an article on this. I think this is sort of the make-or-break year, for better or worse, for the whole former NBA star hired as head coach without previous head coaching experience sort of experiment. Yeah, 
what Penny Hardaway Penny Hardaway has done exactly what Memphis has hired him to do up until this point. Overexceeded expectations in year one. They weren't high expectations, but he exceeded them. Landed top recruiting class. That's exactly what they hired him to do. They are relevant again. They're a top ten team again. Now he's got to go out and produce. And I think if he doesn't do like his ability to do that or not will be, I think, the first indictment on whether that will specifically work or not. Yeah. I think Patrick Jr. is in the same situation with Georgetown, where I think he's done a great job these first two years. He hasn't made the splash that Penny Hardaway did, but Georgetown's gradually gotten better. He's increased the talent level dramatically. I love James Akinjo. I think he's going to be one of the breakout players in the country this year, their point guard. But they're a team that also expects an NCAA tournament berth, and if there's not, I think there's going to be questions about his long-term viability there as well. Uh, For better or worse, Juwan Howard is coming into, I I think, I don't think it's coming into a, I think it's coming into a lose-lose situation in Michigan because given their roster and who they lost uh, with Jordan Poole and Charles Matthews and uh, Iggy Brazakis, there's no scorers on that team. And because of Beeline's late decision to go to the Cavs, there was no real time for Howard to kind of scramble and put together um, a recruiting class to make up for that, so to speak. So this is going to be was going to be a transition year anyway under a new coach. They do return a lot of good players: Xavier Simpson, Isaiah Livers, uh, John Tessier. They're going to be fine, but they're not going to be anywhere near as good as they were under Beeline. And because of the level, the standard that Beeline set. I think is going to be compared to that standard right away, considering his profile, without the tools to necessarily achieve that level, even if everything went right for him. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how the season plays out, particularly with those three guys. I think uh, even though it's Howard's first year, um, it's going to, this season is going to be looked at as whether those experiments and similar ones can work out, whether it's a trend that will continue or kind of get nipped in the butt. Yeah, and I think that you can't really necessarily put Ewing in that conversation. Um, I mean, he did have, what, 15 years of coaching experience as an assistant in the NBA. So he at least knew. That's the thing. All of them had experience, right? Hardaway had great experience at high school to AAU. Ewing had a decade and a half of assistant coaching experience. Howard had six years uh, on the Miami Heat staff as as an assistant. And you could probably tack on a few more when he was a player, but was, you know on the bench being an assistant coach. It's not that these guys aren't qualified, but the way they're viewed as first-time head coaches in a game where they, you know, they weren't assistant college coaches. They were on a different level in in coming down to this. And it's something that a lot of people didn't think would work, uh, particularly in Ewing's case. And there are a lot of questions in in Hardaway's case as well. I think just, just with kind of what's on the line for each of them, it's, it's a really, really big year for those three. Yeah, and I think that, well, I think there's more than just those three. I mean, Terry Porter in Portland is kind of on the hook. I think that uh, Damon Stoudemire um, is probably less on the hook just because I don't necessarily think that uh, Pacific is is as impatient to move back into the the top half of the WCC, but um, he's kind of – been that his teams had a higher ceiling that they never really quite hit. Um, I think with Ewing, though, I think he's going about it in a different way than a lot of the the 
the other coaches in his situation are going about it, where he's kind of coaching his way up yeah. um, and, and gradually improving that team. And, and so his teams aren't coming in necessarily with these lofty expectations and he's just steadily building the program. So I think that his rope is a little bit longer than the other ones who are trying to do it almost exclusively via talent. And um, their, their coaching prowess, so to speak, it has uh, yet to be seen on that front. I would agree with that, but I think the conversation around him changes if they miss the tournament this year. Mm-hmm. Because talent-wise, they should make the tournament. Yeah, as a 8, 9, 7, maybe even 6 seed, they, they should be in the tournament. They have the talent to do so. I think if they don't, in a year where the Big East is wide open, I think outside of Seton Hall and Villanova, I think then the conversation on him starts to starts to shift a little bit. And Georgetown is going to give him a longer leash than a lot of these other guys are going to get. But the question is whether public pressure turns and, and shortens that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, the, only, the only one of those coaches, I think, uh, who is going to get a pass is Jerry Stackhouse at Vanderbilt because all he has to do is win one SEC game, and it's an improvement. But he has yeah. the lowest bar he's got to clear. The lowest bar he's got to clear. Yeah, but uh, no, we'll see. I mean, and they they they'll probably win that one game. Um, I just I I never Vanderbilt's one of those teams. I never quite know if you know their home games are tough or not. If they're <laughs> a good team or not, um, I don't. That's another topic for the day. But I don't know why they set their court up like that. They have all of the accommodations and tools to put it normal, but just don't. Yeah. And, you know, it's a Vanderbilt thing, so it's fine. I just, I I don't understand the purpose behind it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of on that. At least, at least their court isn't a distraction. (laughs) Yeah. So they, they've got that going for them because I, that's a discussion for another day, but I just, I cannot stand when teams try and get artsy with their basketball courts. Try and outdo it. A lot of them overdo it. The last, yeah. the last thing I want to touch on uh, is that Memphis team that we've kind of discussed a little bit. They don't have a, they have some returning talent, but, but not a ton. They're pretty much going to be relying on exclusively freshmen. You got five stars, James Wiseman and Precious, Gonna try. I'm gonna butcher his name all year long. But Preston Achua coming in. Both of them are gonna play big roles. I love Boogie Ellis as their point guard, and I think what he can bring to the table. A roster is gonna be full of top 100 freshmen. The questions are: Can Penny bring them together and coach them to meet their potential as a top 10, top five, Final Four caliber team? And kind of separately, are they gonna be mature enough? to meet those expectations and not come with the pitfalls that we may normally see from a team so young? Um, I think the one thing that they're going to run into is, at least from the outside looking in, as someone who focuses mainly on the West Coast and into the kind of Midwest, um, it seems to me that the... American has taken a bit of a step back, uh, at mm-hmm. least the, the top half of the American and, and, and the level of play that they're going to have next year. Um, 
for, for various reasons. Uh, Cincinnati losing Cronin. Um, US, uh, UCF and, and Wichita State. Wichita State will probably take a step forward, but um, won't be there. Houston losing Armani Brooks. Uh, so I think that the issue they're going to run into is that is the same thing that people talk about with Gonzaga, um, just on a, on a different scale, which is they're going to be freshmen that ne- don't necessarily have the SEC or the ACC battles um, mm-hmm. late in the season. And so while the American is a, a top seven conference, uh, top seven, top eight conference, they're not playing the UNCs, the Virginias, the Floridas, the, right. the Tennessees, the Auburns. And so um, I think that they actually probably get seated pretty high um, just because, for what it's worth, their schedule is still pretty good. Uh, and they're going to win those games. But I don't necessarily, if I were to, you know, look at them as a as a true final four threat i wouldn't necessarily be buying it until i can watch them play i think this year and the schedule sets up really well for them to go into the tournament with a ton of confidence and while not being battle tested in the way i think you'd want them to be still battle tested enough i think the big non-conference game is going to be that game against tennessee that rivalry game which got a little heated last year they're the more talented team now. I think Tennessee is going to take a, a pretty big step back. I don't think you can lose guys like Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield and Jordan Bone and maintain your, your level of play. I think they take a pretty significant step back this year. And I think that's a game where Memphis can have a talent advantage. I think they can make a lot of mistakes and still win that game. And it will be a tough environment. And as you mentioned, the American is not going to be as strong at the top, but you're going to have a good number of teams who have legitimate and suitably tournament aspirations. There's Cincinnati. No one really knows what to expect from them, but they're still going to be a tough out. Wichita State brings you know, their top 10, 11 guys back outside of Marcus McDuffie from last year's team, and we know Greg Marshall. They're going to be really good. Um, Houston took a step back because they, don't, they lost their top guys, but they still have a roster that's going to be really good, especially if Quentin Grimes somehow gets a waiver, which I don't think they're holding their breath on. But – that could throw a wrench into things. South Florida brings everybody back, and they were somewhat in tournament contention last year. They're going to be in tournament contention again this year. Temple, maybe in, maybe in the same boat where they're kind of a, a bubble team. So you're going to have five or six teams outside of Memphis who can say they're disappointed if they don't make the tournament next year. But Memphis is, again, going to have such a big talent advantage over those teams. They can make mistakes and still win. Like, I think they can play their way through some of that young mistake kind of basketball and still get wins just because of their sure talent level. To, and then they'll get to the tournament where at a point where they may have some of that stuff ironed out and played in some tougher games. Uh, but again, again, not against the Floridas and Kentuckys uh, and all of them. So I think it may set up well for them to go into the tournament, I guess, as tested as you may want to be. Mm-hmm but still with a, a fairly lofty record. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, they're going to have the advantage that I think Duke didn't have with, with some of their freshmen, that their freshmen aren't necessarily going to be um, scared. And I, yeah. and I, he did use the word scared, but uh, Cam Reddish 
um, just didn't seem to have any confidence in the tournament. And I think that was partially because he couldn't get it done when Zion was off the court or yeah. his shooting was off and, and he was playing better teams. But, but that I agree that does, that does have an, an effect on, uh, on how you play uh, late in the season. Yeah, they're going to be a team to watch. There's going to be a lot of fun teams to watch, and we got a couple more months to break it all down for you here on the Busting Brackets podcast. We're going to start pumping these out every so often, so make sure you stay tuned. We'll be breaking down everybody from every angle going forward over the next couple months leading up to the start of the season early November. We'll start our conference previews relatively soon, but for now, I'm Brian Ralph from my account. Co-host Connor Hope. Talk to you guys later.